welcome to Cannon Fodder, a behind-the-scenes look at the Glass Cannon Podcast. Welcome back to Cannon Fodder, guys. My name is Joe O'Brien. And I am Pumpkin Spice Troy. Well, look at that. For the for the holiday season. That's right. I'm, I'm drinking a delicious Starbucks Pumpkin Spice Latte. <laughs> if you're looking for quality coffee ingredients and fresh roasted beans, try Starbucks. Oh, get that shit out of my show! <laughs> I did not clear that. You didn't know they are our new sponsor? <laughs> oh, man. I would turn them down in a heartbeat. Guys, welcome back. This is our weekly show recap behind the scenes look at the Glass Cannon podcast. And I got to say, I'm back, baby. I am back. Last week, I was upset. I was depressed. I, I, did, I didn't see a bright future ahead. But now things are changing. Things are shifting. Things are changing. In, uh, things are definitely changing. And after last session, I was... I just got reinvigorated a little bit. I can see how we're launching off on something really new here, and I'm excited to explore it. However, I do have some bad news. It comes with good news, though. I'm nervous. Which one do you want first? Uh, I always like the bad news first. Get it out of the way. Okay. Bad news first. Troy and I are actually on a really short schedule uh, today to record, so we can't do, uh, we can't be as meaty with this cannon fodder as we would like to. But that brings me to the good news, which is we're doing something on this cannon fodder we have never done before. We are such innovators. <laughs> now, I should say that several other podcasts have done this before. It's nope. called an. <laughs> Not true. <laughs> it's called an interview. Uh, actually, we got, we had the pleasure, it was actually Troy, Matthew, and I, after we recorded last week's episode, uh, we got a chance to sit down late in the evening via satellite and talk to the author of book two of Giant Slayer, Larry Wilhelm. I can't, I still can't believe we got to talk to him. I know, it was really awesome, fantastic conversation, and really eye-opening in a lot of ways, and that is going to air on this episode of Cannon Fodder. So, yeah. we'll be playing that shortly, but before we get to that, uh, we do want to actually first let's do some business let's do some cannon fodder business oh all right uh troy remember a little thing called cannon fodder trivia i do not (laughs) you are such a bad (laughs) co-host well we did a little thing called cannon fodder trivia uh, trivia four straight weeks of trivia questions uh submit what you knew and as many questions as you got right that's how many slips you get in the proverbial hat for a drawing for the bestiary five pawn box Mm -hmm. courtesy of paizo and that contest is over. It ended last Friday, and here we are now, and I wanted to give you the answers. Yeah, let's do so, it. So we'll go through. We'll let you know what the correct answers were, and then Troy is going to tell you for a second how uh, he plans on announcing the winner. So question number one. What was that? Uh, question one number one. This was a tough one because it uh, left a little bit up to uh, sort of interpretation, but we were pretty liberal with uh, what we accepted, and then in other cases, we weren't that liberal. How, when, and where did we first hear the name Grenzeldeck? How, when, and where. The how was uh, on a note on Screed's person. Yep, you had to mention the note. You had to mention the note. The where was in the tomb of Uskroth, mm-hmm. and the when was immediately after defeating Screed. Right. Was, you know, you could have said the episode title, you could have said the finale of book one, yeah, or something Episode 27, like. Screed Between the Lines, I think. Yes, yeah. Um, so there was... Um, yeah, there, there was some ambiguity there, but the note was very important because that's how we found out was a note. Screed did not tell us anything. Right. A, uh, lot, of people qu- said, a lot of people said that Screed told us, nope, it's on a note. <laughs> what is question number two? Question number two. At one point in the adventure, the party found the body of a half-orc cleric buried in some rubble. 
What was that cleric's deity? This one a little more straightforward. It was Nolgreth, mm. the blood god. Yes. Whose uh, favorite uh, animal uh, is uh, the wolverine, oddly enough. Get out of here. Yes, one of our listeners pointed that out. It makes a lot of sense. Uh, some people said Gorm. a rabid animal. Some people said Gorm. I think there were a few Desnas in there. Nope. <laughs> nope. Nolgreth. Nolgreth. Uh, question number three. There is an image embroidered on Lork's quick runner's shirt. What is that image? Uh, you know what? I don't even really know. I mean like point by point i know that it is the image of a warrior sliding through the legs of a giant is that, that is what it correct. is correct yeah, yeah. So, so, and slashing upwards at him and slashing upwards at him rudimentary yeah. drawing yeah um a lot of people just googled quick runner shirt and wrote like what paizo said <laughs> and we know uh, we know who you uh cutting corner people are <laughs> corner cutters <laughs> and question number four who was the first summoned creature ever to be called upon the party to aid the party in the perils of underwater combat i love this question this so, was this was a good one troy this is my uh, homage to uh, sat questions that are where there's multiple answers that are kind of right but there's one answer that's most right and in this case, the most correct answer for the wording of that question is Dalton the Celestial Squid. That's correct. He aided us in the perils of underwater combat. Right. Plenty of people got it. Too many people. A lot of people say Gary the Celestial Dolphin, citing that he was underwater during that uh, fight with the giant chained uh, giant, the cave giant with the chains. Yeah. However, we were not in underwater combat. Mm -hmm. So the more correct answer, Dalton the Celestial Squid. Congratulations to everybody that got uh, correct answers. Troy, how are they going to figure out who wins? Um, well, I'm going to do another Facebook Live video. <laughs> All right. Uh, I, I had said before we were going to try and figure out Snapchat or do a live YouTube. No, I think the Facebook Live thing should be something we should be doing more often. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to do it live from Times Square, uh, but I'm going to do it live. Um, how about tomorrow? Oh, okay. So Friday. There you go. I'll do it sometime it's on Friday. a good Friday. way to kick off the weekend. Yeah, I regret uh, committing to this already, but <laughs> tomorrow. We're doing it tomorrow. And this We're is going to be tough live. because there's a ton of... Anybody who answered... If you answered four questions correct, you're going to have four slips in the hat. Right. Um, so uh, a lot of good chances. And then we're going to pick two other people um, to get a, a little doll of the quintessential Pathfinder Goblin. I love it. Well, I guess you got to pick the quintessential uh, Goblins first. So Ooh, that's going to be rough because they're going to be like, that should have been me. I should have won the Beast Ray five bucks. But if I announce it before and I'm like, all right, these are going to be the goblin people, they're going to they're be so pissed. Well, as long as you put the slip back in the hat, eh, who knows? Oh, give you, them a you have the same chance. amount of chances for the Beast Ray five bucks. Oh, I like that. Then there's still a chance. Yeah, So exactly. you're telling me there's a chance. So you're telling me there's a chance. All right. Um, okay, well, I guess it suffice to say we're not going to commit to really anything. We'll see how it goes. Yes. Uh, all I, right. I, I may have a couple drinks beforehand. So. Well, like I said, we're trying to move this one along a little bit quicker than usual, and it's a shame because it was such a great episode. I mean, if we thought we had a couple big episodes in a row, this only keeps the streak going, if you ask me. Now, obviously, it is not as action-packed, of course. It's not as heart-wrenching. It's, it's not as dramatic. But the return to True Now, the return of... Tom Exposition. It's a homecoming. You know, the role play throughout the episode. I mean, this is what kills me about role play episodes is cannon fodder. I'm like, I could talk for another hour about role play episodes because so much happens that's that you can talk about. Right. You know, we're not going to sit here and waste a lot of time talking about individual combat rounds in a combat episode. But role playing episodes, you, you could just go on and on. Uh, and then ultimately, of course, we have the introduction of Skid's new character. Yep. Uh, which, you know... We'll see. We shall see. We will see, yeah. Before we talk about Skid's character, though, let's just take a second 
to just a moment of silence, can we, for Gal? Thank you, Troy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel like going into this episode, we didn't, or, or for us going into the session, we didn't really know if Gail was really out, 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 or if it was going to be, you know, if um, Silvermane or something like that was going to be able to bring him back. But now we know. And yeah. now, we, now we know that Skid knew. Did you t- you, so you talked to Skid. Right. So after the episode, I didn't tell you guys, but uh, Skid and I chatted and I, I let him know that Gail was definitely down for the count, uh, at least for the time being, for the foreseeable future. And, uh, how did he take it? I mean, he seemed to take it fine while we did the episode. Yeah, I mean, this kid's, this kid's a, such a great role player. Like, I, I wrote in the article, like, I'm very lucky to have a guy like Skid who can immediately roll up a character that's going to be, you know, twice as interesting as his previous character. So, yeah. you know, I think the, he's he's upset because Gull was really coming into his powers, coming into his, uh, you know, character a lot more. Um, but Gell is not dead. You know what I mean? He is just in a really bad situation. And, you know, I think maybe his story, at least as, as part of the main story, uh, is is stopped for now. But uh, I'm really excited to see what he does with this next character. And so, yeah, I said bring it, start rolling up your next character. Okay, well, let's put uh, – we'll set Gell aside for now. You know, he's going to be there. He's not dead. Nope. But he's not going to be – we're going to have to take him out of the narrative for the moment. And let's move on to Skid's new character who, in my opinion, is – pretty much perfect now i don't know a whole lot about this character but what i say when i what i mean when i say perfect is it's definitely something we have not seen before on the gcp right not only a rogue finally like like a roguish character but an evil aligned character yeah and i'm just going to shoot through some quick questions here about the episode you know like i said we want to get out of here so i'm going to fire these off at you first are you nervous to gm an evil pc have you ever done it before? I have never. I've never played with oh. uh, an evil PC. Um, or I've never played as a character with an evil PC in my party, and I've never GM'd an evil PC. I'm not nervous about it um, because uh, I don't see Skid uh, railroading things to be like, I go and I stab Della in her sleep. You know, it's <laughs> <laughs> just not the way uh, Skid plays. I'm more interested in how this is going to play out. And I think that evil has a very um, sort of one-dimensional uh connotation in in fantasy like people think oh evil so he's just gonna go kill everything and you know steal you know i think it's gonna be interesting to see how skid plays evil in a world where he has to work with good people i think it's gonna bring up interesting conflict and great story uh i i totally agree and i i think that part of what's underlying there what you're saying is that you uh, as a gm have the benefit of trusting your player you have the benefit of trusting Skit. Right. That's a huge step. If you are unsure if a player, if you don't even know the player, sometimes people GM for players they don't really know, and they bring in an evil character, that can be tough to deal with. That's so, why they don't allow it in the Pathfinder Society, because if you're just going to some convention or some meetup, you don't want some guy coming in and just derailing the entire <laughs> session. <laughs> exactly. But I have run a game with a, an evil character before, like a long-term campaign, and I got to say, it was it was fantastic, absolutely fantastic, because the player was excellent at having the character be motivated by very base uh, uh, needs and by also having really flexible morality. Mm-hmm. But in the end, he ultimately wanted to do what was best for him. And in a lot of cases, what was best for him was to go with the party in certain situations. So I'm actually going to uh, read a little tidbit from the Pathfinder GM's guide uh, because just recently, and you've talked about this before, every once in a while, it, it's good to go back and just read a little bit. 
read a little bit of that GM's guide, refresh a little bit. And I was actually just reading it for other reasons, and I came across this, and it made me think of this uh, of this new character in this situation. So here, here's a little tidbit from the actual Pathfinder GM's guide on uh, having evil characters in your campaign. Evil characters present more than just an excuse to engage in offensive behavior or play homicidal maniacs. Just like good characters, evil characters have goals and desires and understand the consequences of their actions. Those who do whatever they want without consideration for the rest of the party risk undesirable repercussions. So these are the kind of things that you can tell a player, you know, that you can explain to a player that wants to play an evil character. It's like, okay, well, let's make sure that they don't just are not just wantonly evil for no reason. They have goals. They have reasons for doing what they do. Back to the book. Adventurers who routinely steal from their companions, betray their compatriots, are likely to find themselves abandoned or slain. But evil characters who are more than just psychopaths can prove to be valuable members of a group should their goals be parallel with those of the party. Talk to your players and discuss what makes their characters evil, their goals, how allying with an adventure, how allying with other adventurers might aid these goals. At the same time, players of good characters, and this is us in this case, should think about why they might travel with such ne'er-do-wells, perhaps out of desperation, responsibility, or the hope of rehabilitation. So it does give you a, a really good perspective in that one paragraph about how to sort of how to approach it as a GM and also how to approach it as a player when there's an evil character in your group. Right, and, and think about it this way. Screed, Grenzeldeck, they were evil, but what I tried to do is give them, you know, motivations for what they were doing. Humanize them. You know, in a way. Humanize them. And Lork certainly felt that uh, yeah. with Screed. And those characters are characters whose evilness has, you know, really got the better of them and their their ego and their, you know, myopic view of I want to get this for me, for this, for that, for whatever reason, has taken over from them. But I think with a, a character like Nestor, we can see evil um in a different in a different light maybe or maybe he, he's either going to come to a path of redemption get more evil or stay the same i, I don't think he'll stay the same i think something's going to have to happen but then remember the cleric of abadar that was going to hang brynja kelver yeah that is a good aligned cleric, cleric. A good aligned cler cleric who is having a moment of weakness and having a moment of evil you know what i mean so i think good characters can have moments of evil and evil characters can have moments of good and seeing that all interplay i mean i'm, I'm excited yeah i don't know what to really expect in terms of the degree of evilness of this character i truly don't know yet so mm -hmm. we will we will see moving on what did you expect lork to do in the interaction with the bone giant beggar well you know what you you like to surprise me on uh, cannon fodder i'm going to surprise you with a little backstory on where i came up with this idea and i think it's a great uh, opportunity to uh for gms to realize that they can take moments from their own life and bring it into their game so i've been in new york now for 16 years and when I was going to grad school at Columbia, I used to, Columbia, I used to have a 20-minute walk every day on the Upper West Side from 92nd Street up to 116th Street on Broadway. And I was still pretty green in New York. I was 22 years old. And one time I was coming home, and these two big dudes uh, started walking towards me and bumped into me and pretended to drop their sunglasses. And then they like got up on me. It was like, you broke my sunglasses. I want, you, I want money to pay these $400 sunglasses. Da, 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 da. And I'm like, uh, crap. Uh, I, I literally had no money. I just moved to New York to go to grad school. I have no money. I'm like, I, I don't, I, I don't know what to tell you. And they came up on me and started threatening me. I'm like, uh, just walk with me to, uh, I, I, I have my rent money. I'll give you my rent money. Panicked as I'm walking this ogre to my apartment. <laughs> um, realizing 
in that moment that it was a scam and and but i was like too too scared to be to be quite honest to know how to get out of it so i gave the guy like 300 bucks out of my uh rent I, I didn't like bring him into my apartment like oh you want some scones but <laughs> but i uh, i at least brought him uh, nearby gave him the money and he took off and i was like fuck that fucking fuck i wish i just called 911 <laughs> and uh but then he knew where i lived so i i, I made a, a series of bad mistakes not unlike rpcs do from time to time and then years later uh, I was coming out of class and I saw that same guy sitting on the ground, emaciated, homeless, and begging for change. Oh my God. Years later, Joe. And that image, I mean, I, what there was there was a part of me, the evil part of me was like, yeah, he got it, what's coming to him. But then I also felt like compassion. I felt bad that what happened to this guy in his life that he had to do this and now look where he came to us. Yeah. Um, so that moment is 100%. I was running one day and it came to me. I'm like, he has to run into the bone giant and be in a position of real power. And I want to see how Joe deals with it. Is Joe going, is Lork going to stab him or is Lork going to walk away? What's going to happen? Um, what did and, you expect to happen? That uh, was an incredible story, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> that's incredible. Yeah, I didn't tell you that. I didn't no. even tell you before we started uh, recording. Um, I I I thought Lork would take the high road. I thought that you know, especially with the curse being so um, heavy on his mind right now, um, I thought that if he were to do what he really wanted to do, it was just adding more fuel to the fire. So I think you made the right choice. I think there were probably people who's like, "Stop him, please!" Listening, Stop him. listening. I wanted to. I'll tell you yeah. that much. Um, but I think that's that's interesting. Is is when your character wants to do something, and you hold yourself back from doing it. Okay. Well, then I think that that you know brings us to the biggest question of all, which is where is Lork? Oh, where is Lork? Well, uh, find out next week. Yep. Oh, man. Because well, only Joe and I know. I'm actually in on this one, <laughs> so you're not going to find out anything. But we will uh, talk about it after next session. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, so before we recorded this episode, Troy, Matthew, and I uh, sat down in a Google Hangout call with the author of book two of Giant Slayer, Larry Wilhelm. We had a great conversation about his process in writing the book, some behind the scenes looks at the story, and some things, as you'll hear, really surprised us. Like, honestly, you, you and I, during the interview, were just looking at each other like, right. holy crap, we never knew it went <laughs> like this. Uh, Larry has been writing for Paizo for several years as a, a freelance contributor and has a great deal of experience writing for RPGs. And one of the most interesting and encouraging things that I took away from the interview is that Larry is not like a traditional writer. He isn't like, you know, a, went to school for writing and has written all of these right. plays and Novelist books. Novelist come adventure path writer. Exactly, exactly. He has two degrees, neither of which are in writing, and he's never done any writing other than RPG modules and player companions. So if, if you ever thought you could write RPG models for a company like Paizo, you know, this interview is a must. You got to hear this guy's really explanation of how it happens. To hear Larry explain it, it is totally possible. It's totally possible if you are willing to meet the deadlines. <laughs> right. That is seemed to be the most important thing. Uh, also, a quick retraction, actually, I guess is the right word. Last week on Cannon Fodder, you mentioned that you imagine Larry uh, had a lot of help in writing the book. You actually said he had maybe a dozen or more uh, authors and editors helping, and that's why it was so good. It was literally what you said last week on Cannon Fodder, just before we had the right. chance to interview him. And then he tells us he didn't have any help. Now, he has developers at Paizo that help him. Sure. Editors, yes. But no other authors. He wrote 
that whole book himself. All those ideas, for the most part, himself. Uh, so kudos to you, Larry. And uh, and real quick before we drop the interview, as I said before, this was a Google Hangout, so there are some buffering issues now and then with Larry's call quality, but it's really not that bad. But just a quick disclaimer. Anyway, without further ado, here is our interview with Larry Wilhelm. It's late in the evening here on the East Coast at Cannon Fodder Studios, and if I sound a little quieter than normal, it's because I'm trying to not wake a sleeping infant. But it's very hard to contain my excitement at the moment, though, because we are about to interview a very special guest via satellite from Canada. Troy the Valley. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Joe. Oh, man. But actually, my ancestors are from Canada. <laughs> Matthew, no Canada jokes. I love Canada. I, where did this start? <laughs> Matthew is here with us. Uh, he joins Troy and I tonight as we have a discussion with a veteran RPG writer. He's been credited with everything from campaign guides and player companions, such as Humans of Galarian and the Undead Slayer's Guide, to over a dozen Pathfinder Society scenarios, and most importantly to us tonight, a few Adventure Path books, particularly Giant Slayer Book 2, The Hill Giant's Pledge. Larry Wilhelm, welcome to Cannon Fodder. Thank you very much. Just finished my maple syrup here. <laughs> uh, see, he broke the ice, Matthew. You're fine. Uh, first, I want to just thank you, Larry, for taking the time out to join us tonight. We have got several things we want to discuss if we have the time. Things like your writing process, your thoughts on the Glass Cannon Cruise playthrough of your book, and hopefully you can give us some insights on how to get into the business of freelance writing for major companies like Paizo. So let's get right into it and start off by asking, to me, the simplest question, how did you get into role-playing, uh, role-play gaming in the first place, and how did that sort of evolve into freelance writing? You know, I think I started back when I was about 12. My uh, best friend, he had an older brother, and he had all the books. We weren't allowed to touch him, so of <laughs> course we did. And he'd go out for parties, and... Uh, like my, my buddy's dad at the time was a cab driver, so he'd be gone all night. We would just steal the books and start playing and then have to put them back exactly where they were. <laughs> and I played, you know, junior high. I played at a ton. In high school, I kind of played on and off, but I started playing sports and started, you know, liking girls. So I got out a bit and got back into college and joined a gaming group and did a little bit and then went back for a second degree and found myself when I was done my second degree super bored. So I thought, hey, let's uh, start role-playing again. Well, and, and so what were those two degrees in? I have a phys ed degree, not that you would believe it by my girth, <laughs> and I just went back for a nursing degree eight years ago, so I'm a registered nurse. Oh, that's oh, awesome. Cool. That's awesome. Profession nurse. So, <laughs> yes. At what point were you, did, did you start actually writing things down? Were you running homebrew campaigns and stuff? Is that how it started? You know, okay, literally to a word, I, I finished my degree, my after degree, and I'm thinking, holy shit, I've got nothing to do with my time on my hands, there's no assignments. So I walked into a hobby store, and the first thing I saw was Dungeon Magazine. So I picked up a copy, and sticked them on with uh, a green slime or a Jubilex or whatever his name is on it. And I opened it up, and it was during Age of Worms, and I was like, holy shit, this is awesome. <laughs> so of course, I bought all the back issues and the four issues of it, and I started playing Age of Worms. And I got onto the Paizo boards watching that, and then when Paizo left the Dungeon Magazine and went to their own, I, uh, they had an open call. And I entered everyone and failed about four or five, and then I think when they exhausted all the good writers and only had me left, they thought, well, let's give this guy an amateur a call. That's so how we I got... I uh, it to my wife. Sorry? That's how we got uh, Grant and Matthew on the podcast. <laughs> we, we, hold, we held open auditions in New York City, and uh, yeah, after just not finding anything, we were left with Matthew. 
I don't even think you could call me an amateur. Can I, <laughs> have I reached amateur status yet? <laughs> Can you tell us yeah. just a little bit about that process? I want to examine that a little more, maybe the the submission process. So what was it like? Were you submitting samples of uh, a four to five hour one-off adventure or were you just submitting sam- like shorter samples? Very, very short, literally uh, 750 words, one page. Wow. Uh, you give a little splash, uh, list, a, list a couple of encounters and then describe one of the encounters a little more. And uh, they're actually looking for how well you write, believe it or not. They want you to be to write well, and then if you can carry on a theme and a story and, and, and follow their directions and follow what they ask for in the pitch. And it's, it's, it's quite a little more technical than I thought it would be. And where does a pitch um, like that, uh, where do you find it? Do you find it on their website? Do they put pitches in their forums? Or is there another resource where uh, aspiring RPG writers can go to see where these pitches can take place? Well, definitely. Uh, I know in the past when Pizzles first started, they started the Pathfinder Society, and they were doing pitches for that. And I'm not sure if they do that anymore. Um, but uh, a, good, a good resource out there is Wayfinder Magazine. It's actually a fan, a fan magazine that was... Uh, made by Tim Nightingale and uh, Liz Quartz, who actually worked for Paizo, but now has left. And you don't get paid for it, but it's small work, but the people who work at Paizo actually read it. And uh, I I did that after I got a couple paid gigs, and doing that got me even known, and that community actually knows each other quite well. So if they say, hey, this Larry guy who wrote for you, was his writing good? Did he meet your deadline? Was he a pain in the ass to work with? And if you you can get those things crossed off, you're gonna be able to get a job better. And get your, get yourself out to PaizoCon and say, hey, here's my name, and give them a business card and tell them you're interested. You know, they may have to email them five or six times because they may not get back to you, but persistence. Now, if you're creating one of these writing samples, are you, like, playtesting it while you're uh, writing it as well? Or, I mean, that's probably a question for when you write the actual adventure path, but or are you pretty much just sending, like, a, a, an outline that's got some, some meat on it a little bit? So if I'm just doing a 750-word proposal, I'm not playtesting that. But for the Hell Giants Pledge, when I did it, I wrote part one, which was a river journey. Mm-hmm. They got together with my buddies, and we playtested it. I wrote part two of the Vault of Thorns, and I couldn't get with playtesters, so I had to kind of figure that out in my mind. So I, I don't think, luckily people have said they've liked that. And then part three of the Fort, which was a very, I did actually a little bit of research on open dungeon design, which sounds really nerdy. But a lot of adventures sometimes are linear where you go to a castle, you kill a princess, you get the treasure, and it's a straight line. Mm-hmm. Well, I wanted to have multiple points of entry. I wanted to have multiple ways to defeat the boss. I wanted different sub-bosses to try and break alliances, to get factions to work with you, to not work with you. And that part, thank- thankfully, I was able to play test quite a bit because my players able to poke some big holes in where they could go and bypass everything. Kind of, You know, you guys going through the back right and going up to the back. If you went right to the cage, right up to, to a top, you could have defeated Grenzeldeck right away. But luckily, you backtracked and wouldn't get up with uh, the ghost. And so are you typically, you're just always running these games that you play test. Do you ever get a chance to play yourself? Uh, I've, you know, I, I've, I've mostly been DMing recently, and I actually haven't, it's going to shock some people, I haven't DMed probably for three years until about uh, a month ago. And uh, I, I started uh, running um, the newest uh, adventure path with uh, Strange Eons. Jones. Thank you, God. Oh my God, yes, Strange Eons. What happened was, is my best friend and his wife. His wife's really good friend with my wife, and they watch Stranger Things. And mm. his wife says, "Hey, I kind of want to try D and D." And then 
she asked my wife, and I'm like, holy shit, I gotta run for my wife and her friend and my buddy. So I've been doing that. And it went really well until I, until I had to do my first voice of an old lady, and holy, I got I got scared. I'm like making this stupid voice in front of my wife. So <laughs> she never sleeps with me anymore. <laughs> yeah, that'll that'll do it. When yeah. you were playtesting the fort, you did have situations where players were able to uh, squeak by things that you didn't see, and then you were plugging up holes. Did I hear that right? Yeah, yeah, that, that cage, uh, the cage that they have to lift up. Yeah. Before I had a cage in there, for some reason, I don't know why, they, you know, they just having that cage there signals that, you know, maybe we can come back. You know, like the monsters are contained there. We don't have to worry about them. Let's go off somewhere else. And it was actually pretty successful doing that. And that cage, actually, I don't know if I'll get, I'll get in trouble for saying this. I asked if I could do it. The two mantis, this is a little bit old school for those old school people out there. The two mantipores in there with their wings clipped, if you read the original Against the Giant series, there's a manticore in there, and I kind of, I didn't do the exact same thing, I just was very different, but I thought by throwing a manticore in there would throw it back to something I played when I was a kid in the original against the old giants. Yeah, I noticed in the show, Skid pointed it out immediately. He was like, it's a manticore, as soon as he saw the creature, and he, yeah, he definitely has experience yeah. with those old school creatures, and I, I think he appreciated the throwback for sure. Definitely a love song back to the original. So when you're when you're working on on the adventure path, how do you balance creating backstories for NPCs and role playing opportunities with the actual encounters? Like, well, how do you go about just making sure you have a good, well rounded story there? You know, I think I think it starts with the story. Actually, as a GM and I've GM'd, I know that if I don't have a cool backstory for a villain, I'm not going to care, and I'm not going to give it the attention that you know. You, I'm floored by the attention you guys have given to my NPCs, and I'm I'm like a super fan and so impressed with how you guys have interacted with the story, but if you can write, that your biggest enemy is your word count, right? Like you only have so much words to give each section because you're on a hard limit of how much pages the books are. So you want to give, a, a, you know, in that little bit, a meet up. This is what they do. This is what their motive is, and then something really to get that GM saying, "Hey, I can grab this and take this and make it cool." And God, Troy, you, you know, you've really gone gone and done that and added to and fleshed out uh, the guys that I've given you a framework for. There's not one instance where I ha- where I've been upset. I've I've just laughed and I've been like, oh my god, this is cool, and almost like crapped my parents just of how great you guys have gone with that. So <laughs> if you don't have a good, yeah, I you're think you're not going to have a good. Yeah, sorry to cut you off, but I think in a previous episode of Cannon Fodder, we discussed it was a it was a shock to all of us as players when Troy when Troy revealed that he had created a lot of the relationships of the half orcs on Rag's boat, and I just wondered what you thought yeah. of of that whole uh, series of episodes. The ones I watched, I, I listened to. Sorry, I I did enjoy it. Halrix is great because the only blurb I can give Halrix is that she's ornery and that uh, the charm person spell. Having her be charmed and having that attitude change was it made me laugh. And Rag, or Rag himself, who mind you, was my very first half orc D&D character, so I was trying to cheat out an illustration there for myself. It's really good. I, I, I love what you guys have done. And, and for those minor orcs, I can only give a name and a little tiny forward blurb of what they do for my space. But a good GM, you know, Troy, I'm from Propsky here. You're not going to hear it lots, but... You uh, you definitely have done a great job of taking that and, and, and made it into something that's both your got your own and really made me proud to have my name on the front. That's so nice, Larry. I think that, and to reiterate something that you said before, and I didn't realize, I had never put these two things together, but the fact that you were only able to give a name 
of the half works and kind of move on, I didn't realize that that would be because of a word count that you were under by Paizo. And I think that that is really interesting. It kind of train, it teaches people that if you're going to write in this environment, you're going to have to learn how to write extremely efficiently. And I'm sure you would have loved to flesh out some half works or give a little bit more on HalRex. But if you just don't have the time, you just don't have the time and you have to focus in a story on what is most important and trust a GM to do the rest. Yeah, you, you have to. You know, you give them that kernel and they take it. And I really give props to the GMs out there who can take those kernels and flesh them out. And you'll also read the table and see what your players like. And when you see your, your players bite into something, you got to add to it. A little behind the scenes, my my latest project that I handed in is an adventure path for um, Iron Fang Legion, the last the last one. I was over my word count by about twelve thousand words, and a whole adventure is about thirty six thousand words. So I'm talking a third I was over. And I had to cut and cut and cut. So it is easy to kind of go down these garden paths. You have to step away from it and say what's important to the story. Cut back what you have and trust in those GMs and those players that they'll take it and hopefully see what you want. And I commend you guys again. Everything that I've cut out of the whole Giants Pledge, you guys have actually built upon it. Speaking specifically about uh, you know how our podcast lived up to your expectations uh, or how you imagine it in your head, can you pick like a moment or or a, sort of a storyline tangent we went off on that played completely differently from the way you had envisioned it when you wrote it? I'm just pissed off you guys haven't gone to those middle buildings yet. <laughs> <laughs> Every time you guys say we should do the middle buildings, I'm like, yes, go in there. No one's more pissed there. off than me. The middle buildings are amazing. <laughs> Uh, Skid might be a little more pissed off than you. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> the one, the one thing that uh, didn't play out like I thought it did actually were, were some of the haunts when you were downstairs and you were doing the battle with, with Pappy. In the next room, there is a cauldron. That yes, you guys even the damn thing would have. Uh, it was killing me that they didn't touch it. I kept saying, uh, "Now, do you touch it when you're exploring it? Do you want to lift it up? <laughs> Nothing." <laughs> said that four or five times and I'm like do it I was screaming at myself and uh, just things like that you know it's, it's rewarding to see the story unfold because the haunts are quite an interesting mechanic where you would cheat out story through just, just I, I wanted you to get that and say with you know when, when you went to the middle buildings there's a good haunt in there and I wanted to watch you eat your fingers a little bit <laughs> so if uh, do you guys have anything else about book two at all that you wanted to discuss uh, or you Larry you ask me about my outline, what I get is I get a general, I get a kind of like almost an adventure path Bible telling me what the whole adventure path is like. Mm. In total, the whole thing is 29 pages, but they're not full pages. My part's only two to three pages, so it gives me a timeline, it gives me the motives. And like, for instance, it, it says I have to use a marsh giant, a marrow, ogres, orcs, skull giants, and a will o wisp. And it gives me a few suggested monsters, which I try and use, because if they're going to suggest them, they want them to be used. Mm -hmm. And then, for instance, part one here is, I was just said, in the first part of the adventure, the PCs travel from Tranu up the Kestrel River, where they where they should be a river journey. Um, it should be safer than the overland, and this part of the adventure is all about river travel. The river journey should have a few encounters, not so many that the journey becomes frustrating to the PCs, but it should make the point of traveling to the wilds of Belkin difficult. One of these encounters should be with a freshwater marrow, we have to set up a river traffic jam. So the whole, I had that, but I thought, you're stuck on a boat, you're going up a journey, I don't want it to be, oh, we go here, stop here, we go here, stop there. So the whole mystery type aspect of it is something I thought was really good that the developers really actually, when they got a wind of it, they really encouraged me to it. And like I say, when you read my, thi my, my, my stuff, I do have to give a lot of credit to the developers because they, 
I couldn't do this without them. And who were you working with? Who were the uh, developers at uh, Paizo you were working with on this, on book two? At the time, it was it was Rob McCurry, and uh, amazing guy. He's actually a close friend of mine. So they tell you, for example, okay, so Riverboat Journey and uh, Malira is a stowaway on the boat? Or do they just say, you got to work Malira into it somehow? Malira, Malira never came from them. Oh. oh. That was me. That's awesome. All that I, is so cool. So really cool. So then they reverse engineered her. Did they reverse engineer her into book one after your submission? I reverse engineered her into it. I asked Rob if he could put a true love locket into book one. Oh, wow. And then they added that in. So what I did is I looked looked at who's who's the villain. I saw Screed or Spread. I thought, well, I'm going to make his lover pissed off and follow the PCs and want revenge against them. And then I said that to Rob. I was like, yeah, I'll run with it. That's great. Do it. And then he obviously put the true. I said, here's my item, a true love locket. And he put that actually in book. I was surprised to see it in book one. Oh, see, so you don't even know it's going to turn up. And when you see it, you're like, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, it was good. You know, it was, yeah, and Patrick did such a good job on the first book. That, uh, Without ruining things for you, because I, I know you're you're jumping around a little bit. Um, did you know in writing The Vault of Thorns that it would be as deadly as it is? Um, <laughs> I've read other uh, on, the, on the Paizo boards that people have had numerous PC deaths in The Vault of Thorns. Did you know when you're writing it, like, Wow, this is uh, this is going to kill some PCs. Well, as as I admitted before, this is I I didn't play test that middle part. Uh, it's my responsibility to play test. Paizo asked that their freelancers play test, but uh, I had an idea it was deadly, so I put in that effect where you could get uh, healing, where it's a positive energy type of plane to give you max healing. And uh, I, I Rob did uh, he uh, healed it back a little bit from my original version because I think. Yeah, the foresight knowing a little bit more than me what would happen. And yeah, I didn't know as it was as deadly. Well, it was, Larry. Okay, <laughs> yeah. it was. Yeah, it really we, was. We have a little. Uh, we have a little vault of thorns PTSD here. I'm not doing my job if I don't kill this one person. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Larry, I think we're going to wrap it up here. But before we go, I do want to know, uh, if just a fun question, if you could throw out a uh, maybe a, a favorite uh, module or, uh, or adventure series that you experience either as a player or as a DM that you would highly recommend people check out, uh, what would that be? The adventure I remember the most playing was, the, uh, it's, it's old school, it's uh, the U series. So U1, U2, U3, uh, Danger, uh, Sinister Secret, Assault March. Danger at Dunwater and the Final Enemy, and it was my first foray as having an aquatic underwater adventure, and the environment was so cool fighting underwater. It was just, if you haven't had a chance to play that, the first edition, get your GM a free copy of it. I'm sure you can find it for free online somehow, and convert it. It, it was a great, great adventure. All right, and when we talked uh, before we got started here, I know you said that there were a few people that you wanted to thank that helped you out in, in getting started in this uh, freelance realm. So please, by all means, let us know who those people were. I'd like to thank Rob McCurry. Actually, I, I met him in Prague before I started writing, and we were talking about this before he even worked for Pizer and he did something, and he encouraged me to go ahead and do it. And I asked him, actually, don't give me any work when he got hired from him. And he got to the point where he was, I have to give you work because they're saying this guy has to have work. So. Thanks for Rob for giving me my first adventure path start. A couple other AP authors, uh, Jim Groves and Neil Spicer, uh, great authors. Uh, I remember at PaizoCon, I asked, you know, how can I get into this? How can I do it? I've done this little bit of work, and they gave me so much encouragement and offered to read over some of my stuff. Both great guys. And a couple fellow Canadians, one Thurston Hillman, great, great guy. Him and I talk about our writing all the time. 
The second one was Scott Sharplin. And actually, speaking of the Hell Giants Pledge, you know, he's a guy who I role play with. And without him, a lot of the things in that adventure wouldn't be as good as they were. He's got a theater background and just really helped with some of the character development. So, Scott, if you're ever going to listen to this, thank you so much. So it sounds like you know one of the best pieces of advice you could give if you want to get into this business is you can't don't try and work in a vacuum. You need your players, your fellow players, your fellow writers to work with you to create this you know rich tapestry. I, I've read now at this point you know fifteen twenty different Paizo uh, Adventure Path books, and this is one of my favorite, one of my top three easily, if not my favorite, because uh, there's just so many different things going on. So would you agree? Like having a, a, a group to work with is important. Absolutely, absolutely. Just bounce your ideas off. If someone reads something and say, hey, these assumptions you've made don't make sense to me. You, I have it all in my head. I can't always communicate that in my writing, so I get somebody else to look at it and say, no, this make, doesn't make sense or this does. And you're right. You know, you can't do it alone. You have to work hard. You've got to have people you trust. And uh, you know, you don't, don't stay in a vacuum. Ask people for help. Ask people to look your stuff over. And it sounds like you had to go to PaizoCon and, you know, talk to people in person. You had to put yourself in front of people. And that's bold. That that can be hard to do. People can be really nervous about doing that kind of thing. But the, the kind people at Paizo that you met and talked to, they're the ones that gave you those opportunities. So I think that, you know, kudos to you as well for putting yourself out there because that can be really difficult to do as a amateur writer. Absolutely. And, and the guys at Paizo are so encouraging. And to peel back this layer a bit, I want you to know they say this multiple times. If they send out an open call for Dungeon Magazine, sometimes they only had five people answer it. Wow. So your oh chances gosh. are one in five. So the old Nike, just do it, is really true. Yeah, that's that's extremely encouraging. Well, I, I know what I'm doing when I get home tonight. Exactly. I think that's a fantastic <laughs> way to wrap up the interview. Larry, thank you so much for taking the time out again to talk to us. We thoroughly enjoyed book two. The fans thoroughly enjoyed book two from all evidence that we saw, and we have you to thank for it. So we appreciate all your work, and we look forward to what's coming out next. Uh, next, I think actually at any time now, uh, Temples of Galorian is releasing, and uh, it's funny, I got I got the call from Mark to do that. He goes, hey, I have this temple. Do you want to do it? I said, you know what, I'd love to. I just got back to Istanbul, and the temple they assigned to me was a serenade temple to uh, in, in Opera, so basically Byzantine. Perfect. It's a blue mosque and the Hagia Sophia kind of feel in fantasy, so that's what's coming out probably within a month or two. I just got paid for that one, so I'm excited. And then I've, I've, right now I'm currently working on a back matter of some, I don't know if I should say it, but let's just say it's, putting real nasty things into you, well, the environment you're adventuring in. And I just, uh, about two months ago, I handed in Adventure Path 6 of Iron Fang, Fang Legion. And for some reason, they keep wanting me to do large castles and strongholds with open sandboxes. So, Well, Red Lake Fork I'll was... Keep taking- fork, I said it. Oh, my God. <laughs> Red Lake Fork was fantastic, so I, I think that's why. Yeah, thank you. Well, thanks again, Larry. Have a good evening. You too, guys. Have a great evening. Man, what an awesome guy. I know. I'm so glad he's our new friend. <laughs> I, I want to go to Canada and visit him. <laughs> I know, right? How awesome would it be to just be playing a game with that guy online, for example, or just with his wealth of experience? And it sounds like he doesn't even really get to play that much anymore. You I know. know. It's just fascinating. Like, I, I literally, I'm thinking about leaving the podcast and just becoming a writer for uh, Paizo. <laughs> uh, please don't. 
I'm out of here. (laughs) (laughs) All right, guys, that's all the time we have for this week. Thanks again for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the interview. Please write in. Let us know your thoughts about it. Let us know what else we can do to improve the show. And don't forget to write in questions for us on Cannon Fodder. I know we didn't have any emails from fans this week, but we had to make it a short episode and we had the interview. So we thought maybe we could get away with that. But next week, we're back with listener mail. So please send in your your questions for us at glasscannonpodcast at gmail.com. And remember to tell us where you're from. That is a huge part of how we choose who to talk to because we want to spread the love around the country and around the world. Troy, always a pleasure, buddy. I will see you next time. You've, if you've seen The Wire, one of the famous lines is, where's Wallace? Well, now, where's Locke? Where's, <laughs> where's Locke? Locke?